You can turn to John chapter 19. We'll certainly be there in a moment. John chapter 19 at verse 10. But before we begin our study, I want to introduce a concept that theologians call compatibilism. It is from the term compatible, relates to that term. Compatibilism is the idea that the human will is compatible with God's absolute divine sovereign will. In other words, we do make willful choices as human beings, and those choices are always influenced by our nature. But those willful choices do work within God's sovereign decrees. And a related thought is the fact that God's sovereignty over all things never diminishes the responsibility of man or the guilt of man. Well, all of this certainly applies when we examine the events leading up to Jesus' death on the cross. In Scripture, we do find man's willful role in all that happened to Jesus, and we clearly see his guilt, but we equally find the sovereign hand of God bringing all things to their divine purpose, no matter how wicked man's choices were in the process. Now, we find this compatibilism captured well in a passage that I'll comment on just briefly. It's Acts chapter 4, just to let you know what's going on in a section there of Acts 4. The Jewish authorities had put Peter and John in jail for preaching the gospel about Jesus. They heard from Peter and John and then eventually decided to release them, but the council the leaders commanded Peter and John not to preach anymore, which was something Peter and John had to refuse to obey. So after they were released and after the people heard a report from Peter and John, the the people that they had given the report to said this as part of their praise to the Lord. I'll read it. It's found in Acts 4, verses 27 and 28. Listen for the two sides, man's role and God's role. For truly in this city, and this is a prayer from the people, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. There's one side of it all. But they were gathered together to do what? Verse 28 says, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. So there you have the both sides of compatibilism, human will and responsibility, God's sovereignty. So we do affirm both sides because Scripture teaches both. Granted, many do not affirm both sides. In fact, many only magnify and exalt the human side, the ability and power of man and his will. But frankly, to hold that One-sided view is a very discouraging way to live. I mean, it's unthinkable. Unthinkable to doubt that God is completely sovereign. Unthinkable to believe that He's just in heaven merely responding to what man does or that He's controlled somehow by man's choices and man's will. 
frankly, if God is just trying to determine what to do based upon what we're doing or what someone else does, or if he's just in heaven merely staying one step ahead of his enemies, outboxing his enemies, as it were, along the way, or or if it is man's sin and evil and wickedness that's setting the agenda and the timing for everything that takes place, well, think about it. Christ's mission to earth to die for sinners is reduced then to an afterthought by God. Plan B or C or D or E. And if God's sovereignty does away with all human responsibility, there was really no reason for Jesus to come at all. No reason for him to undertake his mission because there would be no real sins for the Lamb of God to take away. Well, today in our passage, John chapter 19, starting at verse 10, going through verse 16, we conclude the trial of Jesus before the Roman governor Pilate. And as we look at this passage, we will see a continuing example of compatibilism. Man's choices and God's sovereignty. The trial has been an unjust mockery if you look at it from the human side. Pilate has displayed ignorance along the way, arrogance, cowardice. We've seen in the Jewish religious leaders a lot of anger and deception. So that's all on one side, and yet God was in control of every aspect. Now, in this final section of the trial, we do find a degenerating series of exchanges in which things are now going from bad to worse from the human perspective. So let's look together at three distinguishing characteristics of the final moments of this trial. Three distinguishing characteristics. First of all, we do find an example, number one, ignorant boasting. We find this example of ignorant boasting. Now, when we ended last week, that was verse 9, we found that Jesus had declined to answer a question from Pilate. Pilate had asked him where Jesus was from, meaning like from earth or some other place. And Jesus refused to answer, and that silence obviously irritated Pilate. Verse 10, so Pilate said to him, you do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you, and I have authority to crucify you? In other words, Pilate viewed Jesus' silence as being stupid at the least, but at the worst, of being an affront to Pilate's authority. Pilate knew he did have some authority. He had sweeping powers, both executive power and final judicial power. So from his perspective, Jesus' silence was an insult to him. Now, the problem is, though he did have some authority in the civil realm, Pilate was ignorant of something. His boast, his arrogant Ignorant boast was not completely true, so Jesus now broke his silence. Verse 11, Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. Behind Pilate's authority was the sovereign hand of God. Now, Pilate was using his authority wrongly. We have seen that. He scourged, had the Son of God scourged or beaten 
He's been allowing along the way, sort of allowing for the potential execution of Jesus. But the fact is, he did not have ultimate control over all of what was happening to Christ. And that's because nothing that happens, even the death of Christ, is outside God's sovereignty. However, here's what is interesting. Jesus not only told him that, but Jesus said something else here. As grievous as Pilate's sin was in this unjust trial that was going on on the human side, Jesus says there was someone who bore even more guilt. Verse 11 concludes, For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Now, we need to discuss some things about what Jesus said there first, some grammatical things even. First, we observe something about the verbal expression, it had been given. The verb is in a neuter form. You need to understand and remember that the grammar is inspired by God. The Holy Spirit inspired a neuter form of this verb, and that's important in determining what the antecedent is. What was given to Pilate? The antecedent of it is not just the authority, the word authority. And we know that because the term authority in Greek is in a feminine form. So it doesn't match the verb. Instead, the neuter form is indicating that what was given to Pilate was surely the authority for sure, but not just that, the entire event of the betrayal, the arrest, and all the trials of Jesus, but particularly the trial before Pilate. The entire legal proceedings were sovereignly determined by God, not just Pilate's authority. So Christ is saying that, yes, Pilate had some authority in the civil realm, and he's guilty, but his guilt is relatively less significant. He did not initiate the trial. He was not the one who engineered the betrayal that brought Jesus to him. So keep that in mind. Second, we need to keep in mind that Jesus was not acquitting Pilate of his responsibility in all this. He was not telling Pilate, listen, I'm going to give you a get-out-of-jail card here. You know, I'm going to give you a pass. No, Pilate did sin in how he handled Jesus. That's compatibilism. God was sovereign over it all, and Pilate was culpable for his actions. It's just that Pilate's sin was relatively less in comparison to the sin of the person who actually handed Jesus over to Pilate. So who is the person guilty of this greater sin? There again, we can gain some insight from the verb delivered. That verb delivered does include the idea of not just making a delivery like an Amazon driver, It means to make a delivery, but in the process, it's an act of betrayal. That is why this verb is regularly attached to Judas in Scripture. But technically speaking, Judas was not responsible for handing Jesus over to Pilate. Also, the same verb is used with reference to Jesus' accusers, handing him over to Pilate. We saw that used that way back in chapter 18, the Jewish religious authorities. So is Jesus, with this verb, referring to the religious authorities? There were several of them. Well, again, the grammar is important. In our verse, the verb is singular, not plural. 
which confirms that Jesus did indeed have one person in mind. So add up all that information. It does seem best to land on the fact that it was Caiaphas that Jesus was referring to. Caiaphas was the high priest. He presided over the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders. That group did confirm that Jesus should be executed, but under Caiaphas's leadership, Caiaphas is the one who should be considered taking the active role of handing Jesus over. So yes, Judas was responsible for his sin and yet still acting under God's sovereignty. That's true of Caiaphas. It's true of Pilate. And yet, in the midst of all that, Jesus is telling us there were different degrees of human responsibility and guilt in those proceedings. That is a biblical concept. Different degrees of consequences and guilt and seriousness of sin. So God had been completely sovereign, but from a human vantage point, the one who delivered Jesus over to Pilate, the one who took the initiative to bring Jesus down, that was the greater sin, and that is seen in Caiaphas. So Pilate, he had a view of himself. It was a pretty lofty view, an arrogant view, but it was also an ignorant view, because as usual, there was something he didn't understand, and that is that it's God alone who sees everything I just talked about, God alone who sees the big picture, always. Here's the second distinguishing characteristic of this final moments of the trial, political manipulation. Number two, political manipulation. Now, upon hearing from Jesus, Pilate was convinced as he had been entertaining all along the way, that he hoped to be able to let Jesus go. There just wasn't enough in the political realm or the legal realm to convict him as being worthy of death. So he says in verse 12, John writes, as a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him. It doesn't mean that Pilate had a full grasp of everything that Jesus just said. But again, he was convinced that nothing had happened that would cause Jesus to be worthy of death. Well, the crowd, once Jesus executed, and once they realized that perhaps they may not be winning the battle here, they may not be convincing Pilate of Jesus' guilt, they pulled out this very important argument and threw it at Pilate. Number, verse 12 continues, But the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. This is an act of manipulation by which the Jews were seeking to accuse Pilate of disloyalty. Disloyalty to Caesar. Now, in reality, that's the emperor. And in reality, Caesar perhaps barely knew who Pilate was and likely cared nothing personally for Pilate, didn't care about him as a person, yet Pilate did care about impressing the emperor and staying on his good side. This emperor was not just Caesar, it was the one known as Tiberius Caesar. History tells us he was an emperor who was suspicious of people rising up against him. He was an emperor known to be quick to entertain suspicions against his subordinates. He was also known to be swift to carry out punishment against them if there was any possibility that they were guilty. 
of treason. So when the Jews said that to Pilate, he took it as a very serious threat. It got his attention. He knew that if a report made it to Tiberius Caesar, especially a report that was going to be spun a certain way by the Jews, a report that was going to make it appear that Pilate was letting a prisoner go, Caesar, who was claiming to be a king. Can you believe he did that? One who might be a threat to Rome? Well, Caesar would not take that lightly. Pilate knew it. So what defense could he possibly have against the charge that he had failed to convict and execute a man arraigned on charges of treason? He was caught. He did not want to look like he was opposing the emperor. So he feared for his position. No wonder. He feared for his life. So he waved the white flag. He yielded. Verse 13. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, meaning no friend of Caesar, he brought Jesus out and he sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now, the Greek term for judgment seat, you may have heard it before, it's bima, B-E-M-A. We refer to it sometimes. It's a well-known phrase, the bima seat, the judgment seat. It was a platform, literally, on, upon which the governor would sit down to uh, give his verdict. His aides also sat there, his clerks and advisors and so forth, some sort of platform. But the judgment seat itself was actually larger than that. It was an area, a whole area, not just the platform that Pilate sat on, but a whole area paved with stones. And our verse calls it here the pavement. That's what it was called, the pavement. Originally, it was an area about 3,000 square feet. And just so you know, an area like that, sure enough, has been discovered, excavated in a building identified as the fortress of Antonia, the very place that most scholars believe this trial was taking place. You can see it in Jerusalem. Well, the Bema, the judgment seat, was obviously important. This is where the governor offered his judicial decisions. And in this case, it was a momentous decision, a decision about the one, the, the one who was alone, the promised Messiah. So much irony we've seen along the way that John likes to include in his writing, and irony is evident again, that Pilate is sitting on the, the bema, judging Jesus. Remember what Jesus said back in John chapter 5, verse 22, that the Father he said, has given all judgment to the Son. Pilate rendering judgment on the very one who is one day going to pass eternal judgment on Pilate at the heavenly Bema. So what were the Jews doing? They were seeking to manipulate Pilate. They were trying to win. They were going to manipulate him with this threat concerning Caesar. They would do anything to win. They would say anything to win to get their way. That's political manipulation. Well, the third and final characteristic of these final moments of the trial, number three, blatant hypocrisy. Blatant hypocrisy. In verse 14, John pauses just for a moment in his writing, in a sense, and he wants to set the, the scene for what is now what we have arrived at, in a sense, the supreme moment 
of history, the supreme moment to which all redemptive history has pointed, and that is the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're basically there now. Here's how he sets the scene for it. Verse 14, now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. I need to comment on that phrase, the day of preparation. That was the phrase normally used to refer to Fridays, what we know as Fridays. That's the day they would get everything ready for what we know as Saturday to the Jew, the Sabbath. Friday was the day of preparation. This year, Sabbath was a very special one because it did fall on the day after Passover. That year, Passover was on Friday. This is a special Sabbath, the day after Passover. But not only that, the reference even to Passover here in our verse does not mean just the literal day, Friday, or the meal that would take place on that day, the Passover meal. It refers to the whole Passover week. In other words, the Passover day and the following week, which was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So that Sabbath was the day after Passover that year, which means that Sabbath was also in the week known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread, a very special Sabbath. So the day of preparation is referring to the entire week, not just the day Friday. And we've seen in Luke chapter 22, verse 1, the term Passover used that way. I've read it for you before. I'll read it again. Luke 22, verse 1. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread which is called the Passover, was approaching. Passover is sometimes used in that broad sense. So the term Passover can refer to just the meal. It can refer to the day or the entire Passover week. So let's remember what's happened on that Friday. In the early hours of that Passover day Friday, Passover day, the trial before Annas took place, Then the trial before Caiaphas took place. And then around daybreak, the trial before Pilate took place. Still on Friday, Passover day. But preparation for Passover means more than that. So John sets the scene here for this important moment in redemptive history. But he also does it by mentioning the time of day, verse 14. It was about the sixth hour. Well, that needs some comment. Because what time is that? Well, it depends on how you reckon the hours. If you do it the way a lot of people would, even at that day, not the official way of reckoning, but just sort of a natural way of reckoning, the day starts at sunrise. We know that's not not true. It starts at midnight, you know, 11, 12 point whatever, you know. But if you reckon hours that way, from sunrise to sundown a day, what would the sixth hour be? Well, around noon. But in the Gospel of Mark, we find this said. Listen to Mark 15, verse 25. It was the third hour when they crucified him. So which is correct? Which writer got it right? Was Jesus crucified at the third hour? Or was he crucified at the sixth hour? The answer is yes. To understand why, we just simply need to remember how time was told back in those days. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. They did not have smartphones. 
They didn't even have wristwatches. How'd they tell time? They looked at a sundial, wherever one might be. Or they would get out astronomical charts and investigate the charts. Obviously, people didn't carry around a big roll of astronomical charts and a big sundial with them and walk around. And anytime they need to know the time, get all that out, investigate, set the sundial down, position it correctly. So what did they do? They just estimated the time based upon the general position of the sun. And because of that, two people could end up approximating the time differently. For example, one person could choose to estimate the time by where the sun is, for sure, you know, moving in the heavens. There it is, sort of in the middle of the up there, moving toward the heavens, toward the, the center point up there. But an observer could look up and, and see the sun and choose to compare it to where it had come from. Now, I know the sun doesn't actually move. We move, but we use that word sunrise and sunset. He could look at where the sun is and choose to make his estimation from the point of where it was earlier, where it came from at daybreak, and choose to say, well, it's about the third hour. Another person might choose to look at it and estimate it from where it's headed to high noon and conclude it's, it's about getting to the 11th hour. The point is, it's referring to the same point in time And even that point's not the main point of the passage. So back to the passage. Pilate knew he was in a trap, a political trap that he could not get out of. But even so, he chose to fire off one final sarcastic statement, verse 14. And he said to the Jews, Behold, your king. Now as expected, Pilate's Statement simply just enraged them even more, verse 15. So they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. So did Pilate stop mocking them at that point? No. Even as he sought what seems to be one final desperate attempt to escape this dilemma he was in with Jesus, he still said, verse 15, shall I crucify your king? the only king you people will ever have? That question drove the religious leaders to their own then blatant moment of hypocrisy, their own moment of hypocritical even blasphemy. Verse 15, the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. That's shocking. The Jews would say that, the Jewish religious leaders, we know what the Old Testament says about the king. We know that they knew what it says. The Old Testament repeatedly insists that the true king of Israel is God himself. So many verses, just a couple, Psalm 149, verse 2. Let the sons of Zion rejoice in their king, meaning God, not Caesar, not some other ruler. Isaiah 33, verse 22, the Lord, that's Yahweh there, Yahweh is our king. That's what they used to say. But now they cry out, we have no king but Caesar. And by insisting on that, the religious leaders were ultimately disowning the kingship of the Lord himself, their own Messiah. It's done.
They were essentially proclaiming, we are going to go our own way. There's one more bit of irony in all of this. They had earlier accused Jesus of blasphemy on the theological side. What do you call this statement? They committed an act of blasphemy, blasphemy of their own when they said that. And it was blatant, such blatant hypocrisy. Well, finally, Pilate does know he's defeated. Verse 16 just simply says, so he then handed him over to them to be crucified. What a moment. The pronoun them doesn't actually refer to the Jewish authorities. We've already established that they did not have the right to crucify anyone at that time in history. It is referring to the soldiers, the Roman soldiers who would indeed carry out the execution. This was the final moment of Pilate's downfall due to his pride, his arrogance, his cowardice, his fear of man. It was also the final moment of blasphemy, blasphemous hypocrisy by the Jews rejecting their Messiah. That's the account as John gives it to us. It prompted some thoughts in me this week. I'm just going to share them with you. Here's thought number one. I trust you'll ponder them as well. We still see political manipulation and hypocrisy today. That may be shocking to you. I mean, the Jewish leaders were not really friends of Caesar. <laughs> but it didn't matter. I mean, that's what's at the heart of political hypocrisy. It's a manipulation. It's doing anything to win. Saying anything to win. Change your views if that's what will help you win. Flip. We see that today. We sit all around us. And I'm not picking out one of the two major political parties. We, we see it on both sides of the aisle. What was my thought? Oh, how we need leaders that are people of character, people of dignity. Oh, how we need leaders who are worthy of trust. Oh, how we ought to be praying that God would raise up leaders like that. How we ought to be praying that God would cause us to be aware of those today who are like that. Thought number one, we still see political manipulation and hypocrisy today. Here's my second thought. Number two, we still are to submit to government today. We still are to submit to government. Let me talk about that for a moment. It's biblical and it's true even when the civil power is wicked or incompetent. Pilate was arrogant, a wicked man. And yet, think about what Jesus told him. He told Pilate that his authority had been given to him by God. And in saying that, not only was Jesus certainly making the point about God's sovereignty, but he was also acknowledging that Pilate indeed have some, did indeed have some authority. Pilate had the right to rule over temporal affairs. And that's what authority refers to, the legal right to rule in government. And govern, and government leaders do have this legitimate right as civil officials. And according to Scripture, 
Christians are to respect the authority of the land. We are to obey the authority of the land. And that's an obligation that exists not only when we agree with its policies, but also when we disagree. For instance, take taxes. We might not agree with taxes. I don't know what your view is on taxes. You might not agree to the purposes for which your tax money is being used. That doesn't negate what Jesus said very clearly in Matthew twenty-two twenty-one: Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. He didn't say, unless you find out they're using your money in a way you don't agree with. In fact, you know what he was holding up when he said that? It was a coin with the image of Tiberius Caesar, a cruel and depraved emperor. And Jesus still acknowledged that he had authority, though, that emperor. Paul stated the matter quite clearly in Romans 13, verses 1 and 2. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. All of them. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. The point is that since secular rulers, all of them, receive their authority by God's sovereign hand and rule, they are to be respected and obeyed as far as possible. You were hoping I would put in a phrase like that somewhere. I just wanted to leave you hanging as long as I could. Christians should be model citizens as far as possible, including using a respectful tone of speech concerning elected officials. But yet in a democratic society like we are in, this does not at all preclude us from seeking to replace those in power who abuse their authority. It does not prevent us from seeking to repeal unjust laws. We should. But it's still a biblical thought. We are to submit to government. And that sets the stage for this third thought. We must still fear God more than men. We must still fear God more than men. We still see political manipulation and hypocrisy today. We still are to submit to government. We we are still required to fear God more than we fear others. Yes, we're obliged to obey the rulers and laws in place over us, but there are, of course, limits to worldly authority and our obligation to obey it. And that's because God himself is always the higher authority. He's the one that gave Pilate the right to rule. God has more authority, a higher authority than any human governing body, and that means Christians must refuse to obey civil rulers when our obedience to God's word is at stake. For example, if the government says we are prohibited from preaching or witnessing for the gospel, we are not to heed that command. Jesus gave us a command. You know it is the Great Commission. 
He commanded his followers to spread the gospel. So we must be prepared to engage in what's called civil disobedience if the government seeks to suppress our witness. Not just any witness, not just any views, but our witness to truth, scripture, the gospel. I read it from you to you from Acts chapter 4 earlier in the sermon when Peter and John were arrested and then released. Let me go back a few verses and give you some of the backstory. Acts 4 verses 19 and 20. Here's Peter and John before the council, the religious authorities. It says, but Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. And then you find in the next chapter, Acts 5.29, those familiar words to us. Peter and the apostles said, we must obey God rather than man. That doesn't change. Now, let me hasten to remind us that that's not all Scripture says about our proclamation of truth. It doesn't say just do it. It tells us how to do it. In other words, our command to obey God rather than men does not mean we can just go about it any way we want. We have to exercise wisdom, wisdom about timing, wisdom when it comes to consideration of the context, the audience, We must have wisdom in being careful to choose the words that we're going to use and so on. Especially think about all that wisdom that's necessary when it comes to social media today. Or you're witnessing at work. Exercise wisdom there. It has to be exercised. Otherwise, I'll just tell you, it's not really witnessing for Christ and the truth. It's just blowing off steam. That's all it is. Ventilating. Or worse, it ends up being damaging to the testimony of the gospel. There's something else, though, besides just our speech. There's a second situation that requires civil disobedience, and that's concerning our moral conduct. We must seek to live holy lives. We must always seek to do what is right, even if there are consequences, even if it means being punished. We must not sin against God's word. So we do have a moral obligation to righteously oppose ungodliness. We must oppose wickedness. That includes the slaughter of unborn children. Christians are obligated to speak out against sexual immorality, against homosexuality. We're to speak out against the sin of racism and hatred. We're to speak out against corruption, whether it's government corruption or corporate corruption. And the list goes on and on. There are other evils. But what I'm saying is our commitment to truth in all those areas includes us staunchly refusing to participate in those sins as well. And something else is timely about all this. Our governments are going to continue to pass so-called hate crime laws that forbid Christians to speak out against moral perversions. We must still speak the truth in love, accepting the consequences, but breaking those ungodly laws. Let me just say it all another way. We're not to care ultimately about being a friend of Caesar. Not at the expense of disloyalty to God and disloyalty to his word. Christ is the great example to us of all this. He reverenced the Father. He loved the Father throughout the trial. He was staying obedient to the Father at all costs. 
That's what he came to do, to obey the Father in the way he lived and the way he died. He feared God. And if we fear God that way, we will be able then to resist the sin of the fear of man so that we do not shrink back from our our proper witness to the gospel and so that we don't compromise our conduct either in this world. Always remember what Proverbs 29, 25 says. The fear of man brings a snare, a trap. But he who trusts in the Lord, he who fears the Lord will be exalted. That's how we find the strength to defeat the fear of man. It's trusting God's sovereign will. Jesus was like that. Totally aware of God's sovereignty over every detail of his life. Confident that God's will was going to be done no matter what. Because he knew that, he entrusted himself to his Father in heaven. Likewise, we need to do that. We need to remember that's our God. That we're loved by a a sovereign, omnipotent, good God who has promised to care for us. We will oppose the unjust demands of secular rulers. We will not buy into the sin of our culture if we realize that the Lord we trust is the ultimate authority, more powerful than all other worldly rulers. How do you develop that kind of fear of the Lord and that trust in the Lord? Especially as days get darker and darker. Well, our trust in the God is going to grow in relation to the depth that we know His Word. That's where we find the right view of God. It's in Scripture that we find the true description of who He is. So the trust will grow as we, as we plumb the depths of, of His Word, and our trust in Him will grow the more we, we intentionally surrender our wills to God in regular times of prayer. God, I give you today my life, my body as a living sacrifice, holy unto you. Jesus did that. Before he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, what was he doing? He prayed. And in that prayer, he surrendered his will to the Father. Let this cup pass from me. But what did he say? Yet not my will, but your will be done. Again, the bottom line is that we will fear God rather than men. We will be bold in all situations. And we seek him out in his word and in prayer. And as we seek to obey the Lord in all situations, it may very well be that we will have to endure suffering, maybe even death. That could be the result for us in this life. But even so, we must persevere knowing the Lord promises that he is walking with us through all of that, strengthening us by his grace. The last thought, number four, we still must embrace Christ as the only Savior. There's a question that Matthew records that John doesn't. Matthew 27, verse 22. Listen to the question that Pilate posed. Pilate said to them, the crowd, then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? What a question. That's the eternal question. The question for us today What shall we do with Jesus? He spoke more deeply than he knew when he asked that question, like Caiaphas did before him, you know, the high priest, when he said that one man's going to die for the nation. He didn't understand all he said. I'm not saying Pilate knew what he was asking here for sure. 
But he asked the Jews that, and they chose to reject the Lord. That was their choice. What to do with Jesus? Reject him. Reject the truth of Scripture. Live according to their own agenda. I'm just saying the, state, the same choice is here today. People will either embrace truth, the worship of Christ, or they'll look to some other Savior. They will look to some other king, some other Caesar, like government, or false ideologies, or woolly philosophies. They'll look to something, everybody does, self-help even, for work, for salvation. We still must embrace Christ as the only Savior. He's the only one to look to. The Bible's clear. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It presents no middle ground and neither did Jesus. He said this in Matthew 12, 30, he who is not with me is against me. The choice is seek to be a friend of Caesar, the world, or seek to be a friend of God through Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for being able to look at this momentous scene, the eternal Son of God, the one and only Savior, the promised Messiah, the Lord Jesus, enduring all this in the place of sinners who did deserve it. Lord, may we never forget, those of us who know Christ as our Lord and Savior, may we never get over this, the reality that Christ did what we could never do. He lived the perfect life in obedience to the Father. He obeyed you going to the cross to take upon himself our sin, the sin of your people, the Lord Jesus being obedient in life and death. Lord, we can never fulfill obedience perfectly like the perfect Lamb of God. So thank you for Jesus. Just help us remember each day it was all to take our wrath upon himself, the wrath we deserved. May that stir up passion for him, love for him. I do pray for anyone here, any of your sheep that are here, that, that this could be the day you call them to yourself, that you would open their hearts. They might see Jesus and answer that question of what to do with him the right way, to entrust themselves to him as Lord and Savior for the forgiveness of their sin. In his name we pray, amen.